0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. In Singapore, when you come into the city centre from Changi Airport, you see a whole lot of flower beds in drums, and they're all clustered together to form the central reservation on the expressway. A Singaporean once told me that those drums are there instead of a concrete barrier for national defence purposes. The idea is that if Singapore ever came under attack, the drums could be quickly pushed aside to turn the expressway into an airstrip for fighter aircraft. And this is all part of Singapore's long-standing defence position that's called the Poison Shrimp Doctrine. Singapore's founder, Lee Kuan Yew, said, in a world where the big fish eat small fish, and the small fish eat shrimps, Singapore must become a poisonous shrimp. Sam Roggeveen is here today. Sam is an Australian strategic analyst. He's based at the Lowy Institute. And Sam thinks Australia should likewise set up our defences to make any attack on Australia too painful for the would-be attacker to even contemplate. He calls this the echidna strategy, which is the title of his new book, Sam Rogovin says that despite everything the U.S. has been saying recently about China and the need to contain Chinese power in the Pacific, the U.S. will inevitably step back from the Asia-Pacific. And with that, Australia will gradually lose our great power protection from America and we need to be ready for this. Sam argues that Australia can defend itself against the challenge of a rising China, and it doesn't have to cost more than we spend already. But all this has made him something of an outsider amongst national security circles in Australia. Hello, Sam. Hello, Richard. How did you come to be involved in this world of national security in the first place?
1: Well, I guess it started at high school. Like many uh, boys of my generation, I was fascinated by uh, fighter aircraft and military kit, but particularly fighters. And I guess this was a time of Top Gun as well when I was in <laughs> high school. I never got very far in that interest because uh, the Air Force decided my eyesight wasn't good enough to become uh, to become a pilot. I wasn't interested in doing very much else in the Air Force. And by that stage, my interests were kind of developing into broader issues of strategic studies. So yeah, I, I developed an interest really in the more political aspects of military force and of war. And beyond that, international relations as a whole and politics. And so that's really the, that, that's really at the heart of it. You worked for a while at the Office of National
0: Assessments and at another Defence Intelligence Institute. Defence Intelligence
1: Organisation. Yeah, yeah. yeah
0: there's, we have about four or something of these organo- intelligence organisations in Australia, or maybe more, I think. No, it's we? more than that. But there,
1: there are two main ones that do intelligence analysis. So there are others that do the collection. But the main, the main national intelligence agencies are DIO, the Defence Intelligence Organisation, And ONI, used to be called ONA, the Office of National Assessments, now the Office of National Intelligence. What
0: was your role at the ONA, which is now the ONI? Yeah,
1: so I was a senior analyst at the Office of National Assessments and my role was really to assess all of the intelligence that came in on particular subjects. My area of expertise was North Asian security issues, uh, nuclear proliferation I looked at as well. So there was this flood of information daily that came in, not only from media sources and academic sources, et cetera, but also from the secret squirrel stuff, you know, the, the um, signals intelligence, satellite photos would come in. And my job was to analyse it and to synthesise it and to write reports for the Prime Minister and for the Cabinet to say, OK, this is what all of this means and these are the issues you need to be worried about.
0: And these days you work for the Lowy Institute whereby this matters are often for public discussion. Mm. Is there part of your brain that has to go, mustn't talk about this because this is a, one of those official secrets that uh, shouldn't be talked about in public?
1: Not so much anymore in the sense that I, I'm so far removed from that intelligence world, but certainly in the sense that, you know, the Lowy Institute's a think tank and think tanks operate in this unusual space between government and media and the public. And so, you you know, like Many people have to work in areas where they respect confidences. My work's no different. Yeah, there is a little bit of, uh, there is a little bit of that that goes on. In the last couple of years,
0: all of our assumptions about Australian defence have been overturned by the announcement of the AUKUS alliance between Australia, the UK and the United States. It seems we'll be getting three new nuclear-powered, not nuclear-armed, but nuclear-powered submarines within the next decade. What will these new nuclear powered subs allow our military to do that we can't do now, Sam?
1: All right. Well, let's. If you forgive me, Richard, let me start by just interrogating the question a little, a little bit, because you referred to AUKUS as an alliance. Now, the AUKUS, AUKUS advocates, in particular, are very keen to tell people that this is not an alliance. This is a a military technological sharing agreement. Uh, the biggest a partnership, in other words. Yeah. I very much feel that there's a distinction without a difference here. When we're talking about nuclear submarines, that implies a partnership of such depth and of such intimacy that it implicitly comes with political strings attached. Right, it becomes a de facto alliance of of sorts. Of course, we already have an alliance Mm. with the United States, but this implies, I think, a a pretty dramatic deepening Mm. of it. Um, As to the submarines themselves, three and Perhaps as many as five American Virginia-class nuclear-powered submarines. And then following on from that, a new class of submarines, which we're designing mostly with the Brits, but with American help too, at the moment called SSN AUKUS, which exists only on paper at the moment. It's not a real boat. We're not even close to starting the building of that submarine yet. Eventually, the idea is that we'll have eight of these submarines, and these these submarines are incredibly powerful. They are the apex predators of the ocean. You know, if this was the natural world, these would be the the, the big sharks at the at the top of the food chain. Uh, they're incredibly powerful. They can sink basically any ship at sea. They can fire missiles onto land targets and they are incredibly persistent because they can stay at sea for months on end the fact that they're powered by a nuclear reactor means that the only thing that forces these submarines to eventually come back to a naval base is that the endurance of the crew runs out or they run out of food on board the (laughs) uh on board the boat but other than that they could stay at sea more or less indefinitely
0: so this is a big question, but what are some of the strategic assumptions that sit behind acquiring these boats? Is it that they would be used primarily to thwart an attack within our region, immediate region in Australia, or to participate in coalition warfare beyond our immediate region, for example, in repelling a potential invasion of Taiwan or South Korea, for example?
1: Well, the first thing to say about that is that we, we don't know because the government hasn't told us. Neither this government nor the last government has offered a really clear statement about why we are getting nuclear-powered submarines, why we are investing somewhere between 268 and $368 billion, with a B, in nuclear-powered submarines. That, to me, is an extraordinary gap in Australia's public conversation that neither Prime Minister Morrison nor Prime Minister Albanese has offered a fully strategic justification for this capability. Well, then
0: let me ask you, if you're standing outside of Australia and you hear of this decision, you don't know Mm. the stated justifications, what would you assume we were trying to do in acquiring these boats? Yeah,
1: look, I, I think, to me, the most plausible justification is that Australia is developing a capability that allows us to operate incredibly closely alongside the US Navy. So, if we were buying conventional submarines, that is, you know, diesel electric submarines not powered by nuclear reactors, then I think it would be much easier to make the case that we are purely developing military capabilities to defend the sea and air approaches to Australia. Because those kind of boats really aren't that well suited to operating thousands of kilometres to our north. But these nuclear-powered submarines, that is what they're best at, right? They could be used to defend the air and sea approaches to Australia, but that's not really what they're best suited to. What they're best suited to is operating thousands of kilometres to Australia's north for months at a time. And that, to me, carries the implication that we'll be operating alongside the United States because... There is no way, it seems to me, that we would ever want to operate independently that far north against an adversary as uh, as powerful as China. How has
0: the announcement that we're acquiring nuclear submarines gone over with the near neighbours like Indonesia and Malaysia and Singapore and countries like that?
1: The problem here is that they say one thing publicly and another thing privately, and it's just not clear which one we should take to be the sincere position. My sense is that privately there's a concern among our Southeast Asian neighbours that uh, Australia is bringing this new Cold War to into their part of the world and that we are creating trouble where they would prefer to avoid it and perhaps forcing choices on them which they would prefer to avoid. And then publicly, they're a little bit more, a little bit more supportive. It, it's simply not clear to me which of those to believe, whether it's uh, whether the private or the public.
0: Maybe there's a split within those nations themselves amongst the leadership on this on this matter.
1: Quite possibly. I mean, I, I definitely think that Southeast Asian nations look, in a sense, we're all in the same boat, right? We we all want to see a region in which Chinese power is balanced but we all have massive economic interests in, uh, in China, in the Chinese economy, nobody really wants to disturb that. Everybody wants to avoid choosing.
0: Is balanced a euphemism? Don't you mean constrained?
1: I don't think it has to be a euphemism. Yes, it, uh, well, it does mean constrained to some degree, yes. So I, I think the, the objective for Australia and for uh, our partners in the region ought to be that... Chinese power is never dominant in our part of the world. That's different to China being a leader. I think that's almost impossible. Chinese, China will inevitably become a leader in this region, including in the military sphere. But it is w- definitely within our power in Australia and with, our, with partners like Indonesia to ensure that China is never the dominant power in, in maritime Southeast Asia. You know, before
0: the AUKUS announcement, it's possible, I don't really know, Sam, there might have been a couple of blogs Australian military blog saying what this country really needs is a couple of nuclear-powered submarines. We weren't hearing calls for nuclear-powered submarines in the defence establishment in Australia. And yet, as soon as the AUKUS decision was announced, a very quick consensus formed mm. that we do, that we should have these things, and that's now very much the consensus. It's, it's a, a consensus shared by the major parties, the Labor Party the, the, and the Coalition, how did this happen this this quick consensus form around something that very few people, if any, were calling for. Mm before the announcement?
1: There's a there's a charitable way to interpret this and in a less charitable way. The charitable way to interpret this, and I think that this is partially true, is that the reason that there was no major push for nuclear-powered submarines before AUKUS was announced is that most people, including myself, assumed that it was just not possible. No, no one was ever going to sell us this technology, so why even bother pushing for it, right? Uh, I think the other way to interpret this is that uh once, a con- once the government announces a position, the easiest thing to do is simply to, to muck in behind it. And uh, there's not an awful lot to be gained from standing outside of it. Yeah, it, it could be a combination of both. But I do think it's an important factor that we, we, we all thought this was just impossible, that this would never happen. And uh, it, it really was an extraordinarily a dramatic piece of diplomacy by uh, the Morrison government and of policy to actually get the United States to agree to this.
0: You write that our participation in AUKUS constitutes a big bet on America. Mm. How closely does AUKUS tie our defence systems to America's defence systems and American foreign policy, American strategic policy?
1: Well, it seems to me impossible for something... of, of this, that's this long-lasting, that's this expensive, and that's this intimate in terms of technology sharing to come with no strings attached. So the United States has only ever shared this kind of technology with one other country in the past, and that was the United Kingdom starting, I think, the late 1950s. So this is entirely, well, this is almost completely novel for the United States to do this. And you don't do this with, with a country that you don't trust intimately. I think, actually, that that was part of the Australian motive, the Morrison government's motive in announcing this agreement was to actually tie the US more tightly to the region. It seems to me difficult to imagine that having acquired these capabilities, and let's remember, it's a long while off before we get them. But once we acquire these capabilities, it becomes very difficult to say no to the United States, should they ever, you know, want to call on them capability can drive policy. So if we never have these submarines, if if we don't have a choice, then of course the question never arises. The United States will never ask us for something we can't provide. But once we do have the military capability, then we're in a position where if the United States should ever call on us, we'd be forced to say no. Your argument is that the United States probably won't do that. The United
0: States is now inclined to retreat from the region. There won't be a grand announcement. It'll just be this slow kind of sunset of American power in the Asia Pacific region. It's a, it's a really interesting thing to say at a time when, as we've seen in recent years, in the face of growing Chinese belligerence, the United States has forged much closer defense relations between. Japan and South Korea, which was previously unthinkable. America's getting closer to Vietnam. The Philippines is taking a greater interest. We certainly are. The United States has had a lot of success in persuading other countries in the regions that their interests are threatened by growing Chinese military power, growing Chinese belligerence, And America seems very present at the moment in uh, acting to contain Chinese power. Why do you predict America in the coming decade or so, or decades, will retreat from the region.
1: Yeah, I agree. The ev- The evidence you present is very strong. and There is clearly a, a story to be told about America's growing awareness of China's rise and a, of China's threat. In fact, you know, a lot of analysts, uh, I, I've heard them say that in a time of unprecedented division in Washington. The one thing that brings uh, policymakers from the Republican and Democratic side together is China. That's the one thing they can agree on. So yes, my argument on its face does sound a little like it's going against the grain of the evidence, uh, where the evidence takes us. The big missing piece for me is military. So the United States has, yes, everything you you list there plus more. But what's missing is an increased military presence in uh, the increased American military presence in the region. So essentially since the end of the Cold War, American force structure in Asia hasn't changed all that much. Uh, Lots of new basing arrangements, including in Australia, uh, in recent years, they've announced that they're going to put more bombers into uh, uh, Northern Australia and there's going to be a submarine facility in Western Australia. But essentially, they're moving pieces around the chessboard. They're not adding more pieces in. And that's in the face of the, the largest military modernization that we've ever seen since World War II of any country. That, that is, of course, China undertaking that. So, so you so, would think. So what you're saying
0: is that America isn't really contributing more, but it is setting up other nations in the region to align with itself and its, its view of China and the need to create stability through a more coordinated approach to that?
1: Yeah, what I'm saying is the United States itself hasn't made any what you might call costly signals. So selling weapons to Australia, for instance, isn't terribly expensive for the United States. In fact, it's all upside. Moving forces around the region... Is costs a little bit, but is not terribly expensive. It's not a massive commitment. So we've long since, I think, reached the point where China's military rise is so significant that a really dramatic gesture would have been called for from America. For instance, the United States could have announced that it was pulling all its forces out of Europe and moving them to Asia. I mean, really, the, the, the scale of China's military rise does demand a response like that, and yet it hasn't happened. In fact, well, it's not that even close. Well, the invasion close.
0: of Ukraine, and that's, that's been a factor too, surely.
1: Ah, that's been a factor. But look, you know, the, the, the combined European economies are roughly 10 times as big as that of Russia. This is not beyond the Europeans to deal with themselves. They, they very much could if they wanted to, but it's very comfortable for them, of course, to leave most of the work to the United States. You think
0: in the long run, America will conclude that China poses no serious threat to it militarily. Yeah. What makes you say that, given that we do know that China will have long-range nuclear missiles that could certainly at least reach their West Coast cities, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego? Mm. What makes you think or say that America will conclude that China doesn't present a real military threat to mainland America.
1: Yeah, look, China can already project force through nuclear weapons onto the American landmass, that's true, but the United States can do that to China as well, so they're effectively deterred from uh, striking each other with nuclear weapons. The reason I think that Australia needs to worry about uh, American resolve, its, its political will to maintain its leadership in Asia, is that ultimately China's rise does not threaten the United States. America is an incredibly secure country, inherently very secure. It's separated by a vast ocean from China, which is very difficult to cross. America has all the ingredients for sustained uh, economic growth into the future very young population, very innovative economy. So it will remain capable of funding a large military effort. So it'll have a huge military force for the indefinite future, thousands of nuclear weapons separated by a vast ocean, as I say. You know, as big as China is going to be, it's not going to overcome those kind of disadvantages. So America is incredibly secure, and in the end, I think, That speaks to America's motivation. Why would the United States make huge sacrifices on behalf of its allies to protect them against China? That's the thing I think Australia needs to think about.
0: When you talk like this, I'm sort of imagining something a little bit like the British retreat from Asia that only really became apparent when push came to shove with growing Japanese militarism during Mm. the outset of the Second World War. Britain couldn't afford to sustain a military outpost in East Asia. Is this the kind of thing you're talking about that there'll come a point when we re- when America hollows out its commitment to the region so much, it'll become apparent that they have withdrawn from the region, that they really have no interest in being, maintaining their dominance in mm. this part of the world?
1: Well, I think actually that a physical withdrawal of American forces is kind of the last manifestation. And I don't actually see that happening in, in the in the near future at all. So I think America's... Military commitment, the, the, the troops, the ships, the aircraft that they have stationed in the region, the air bases, those will remain indefinitely. I don't see that changing. And there are all sorts of uh, bureaucratic reasons why that won't change. Really, I think the way that America's declining resolve manifests is in the minds of its friends and its adversaries. And it goes back to the point that I was making just a few minutes ago. For for alliances to work, for America's security commitment to Asia to work, its friends but also its adversaries, potential adversaries, have to believe that America is prepared to make major sacrifices to defend its interests in the region. So let's take... Uh, Korea as an example here. The United States has tens of thousands of troops, uh, air bases in South Korea, has a security treaty with South Korea that's dedicated to, you know, defending it against the North Korean threat. Now, North Korea now has, like China, but in smaller numbers, has Mm. missiles that can land a nuclear warhead on an American city. So since that has happened, we are being asked... Both America's friends and its adversaries are being asked to buy the proposition that in the event of a war, the United States would be prepared to sacrifice one of its cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Washington, in order to save Seoul and the the rest of South Korea. Does that seem plausible to anyone? It doesn't to me. I mean, South Korea is, I think, the seventh largest economy in the OECD. Uh, North Korea is a tiny economy. The South Koreans ought to be able to do this by themselves. It's not really fair to ask the Americans to make that kind of sacrifice on their behalf. And I don't think it's believable anymore. And, and that, that problem, I think, is true throughout the region and is true for the China threat as well. You know, if no vital US interests are at stake, it's really not fair for us to ask the United States to make major sacrifices on our behalf. And ultimately, I don't think they will.
0: China has been using its growing military and economic strength to practice a fair bit of attempted intimidation, perhaps even coercion, on neighbouring countries. It's built military installations out of freshly created atolls in the South China Sea. Wouldn't the United States see growing Chinese control of the shipping lanes in the South China Sea and in the region as a threat to its economic
1: interests? I think the the argument about shipping lanes is a little... Overwrought. I mean, there is in Australia, for instance, a a school of thought that, you know, we shouldn't just be worried about our territorial security, we should be worried about the sea lanes that connect us to the world. Uh, and, And yes, I think what you're talking about is a version of that argument. I mean, for the United States, firstly, I think the, the, the counter-argument is pretty straightforward. The United States is not hugely trade-dependent with, with Asia anyway, or in fact with, with any part of the world. Comparing it to other OECD economies, the United States is one of the most self-sufficient economies out there. It is not, you know, vitally trade-dependent on Asia.
0: It's very reliant on Taiwan for microprocessors, for yep. the moment anyway.
1: Absolutely, yes. We're all All nations around the world are. I think over ninety percent of microprocessors uh, that are sold around the world are coming out of out of Taiwan. That's true. The 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 reason these trade routes are so vital is because uh, the narrow straits through which these trade routes run are the most efficient way from getting of, of getting goods from point A to point B. But of course, you can choose slightly less. Uh, efficient ways to do it. If one trade route is blocked, then ships can move. They can, you know, they can choose another route. So protecting all of these trade routes is incredibly difficult, but also stopping trade, blockading uh, trade is also incredibly difficult. The, the, the third point I'd make is that China is much more vulnerable in this regard than the United States is. So should China ever threaten America's uh, sea lines, it, its trading uh, lanes, then the United States could threaten to do the same thing to China. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler on ABC Radio.
0: Sam, you argue that... When it comes to defending Australia, which always needs to be front of mind, distance is our greatest ally. Can you explain what you mean by that?
1: The simplest way to think about this is to note that Beijing is closer to Berlin than it is to Sydney. This is often forgotten in the Australian national security debate. We hear sometimes that when it comes to China, danger is on our doorstep. Or I think it was Barnaby Joyce who said something like that we're in danger of being encircled by Chinese power. I mean, we're a long way away from that. I and
0: don't know. We don't know what they're up to in Antarctica, though, Sam, do we?
1: <laughs> Actually, that's an interesting <laughs> subject in and of itself. China's very ambitious in Antarctica. Well, okay. okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but look, distance is our greatest friend. So let, let me offer just a simple illustration of that. As impressive as China's military modernisation has been over the last 30 years, No nation, China included, has overcome the restrictions that are imposed upon every military force by distance, right? It's a critical factor in determining how much military power you can project. So if a military commander needs to put 500 kilograms of high explosives onto a target, if that target's over the next hill, well, you could probably truck it there under the dead of night and detonate it remotely if the target is 5,000 metres away, you need an artillery piece. If it's 500 kilometres away, you need a fighter aircraft with you know, an airfield and all the crews and all the support stuff that comes along with it. If it's 5,000 kilometres away, you need an intercontinental ballistic missile, and that is itself incredibly expensive. So at every step along that continuum, it gets much more expensive and technically much more difficult. And yet, the actual military effect that you're achieving remains constant. It's 500 kilograms of high explosives all along the way. So in a nutshell, that's why it's so important for Australia to preserve that distance because the further away we are, the more difficult and the more expensive it is to project military force against us. And the thing that I'm worried about with AUKUS is that instead of exploiting the distance between us and China, we're effectively trying to compress it because we're buying weapons that are designed to operate very far from our shores. And and my simple argument is that in in the unlikely event that China ever wants to, to use military force against Australia, let them come to us. Let them overcome that tyranny of distance rather than us doing it for them. Could Australia
0: ever realistically defend itself against an attack without help from the United States?
1: The short answer is yes, and that's the hopeful message of the book. The slightly longer answer is that it's hard to conceive that it would ever be totally without help from the United States. So if you look at Ukraine at the moment, for instance, this is a nation that is not a formal ally of the United States, and yet it's still getting lots of help from the US. I think we can assume for the indefinite future that something like that kind of relationship, at the very least, would continue between Australia and the United States. But I think the question you're, you're asking is, can Australia defend itself against a major power, probably China, where we don't have American combat help, where American forces wouldn't come to our aid? And I think actually the answer is yes, and it is because of that issue of distance. China, of course, is a huge military power and getting bigger all the time, still has major ambitions to grow its military power, but distance helps us. It is very difficult for China to bring very much of that military force within our sphere and within our surrounds.
0: Perhaps so, we should talk a bit more about that word threat too. I, mm-hmm. I don't think there's anyone who seriously thinks Australia is in any danger of invasion from anyone at this point. The Australian mainland is in danger of military invasion for a start uh, attacking power from the north that have to climb over Indonesia to, to be able to do that. Right. That's not what we're talking about here when we're talking about a threat, a military mm-hmm. threat to Australia. What do we mean? What do defence analysts mean when they talk about a threat to Australia? A nuclear missile aimed at Pine Gap, for example, or defense installations in the north of Australia, perhaps? Well that,
1: that that's certainly a possibility, although in circumstances where China is firing nuclear-tipped missiles at Pine Gap, then we're already in World War Three at yeah. that point. So the threats to the Australian mainland are probably secondary there. I think we're to we're, talking going about, to hell. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking. Yeah, we're talking about a planetary emergency mm-hmm. at that point. But look, I, I think more realistically, what I'm thinking of is that China uses missiles, whether fired from the Chinese mainland or fired from bomber aircraft or fired from ships and submarines to attack the military facilities and perhaps some economic infrastructure to our north. The decisions we've made in the last year or so about inviting more American bombers and uh, submarines onto Australian shores actually increases the risk that Australia would be hit in uh, a wartime scenario. At the moment, if the United States and China went to war, I think Australia would be really a a secondary target. We wouldn't be at the the forefront of Chinese thinking at all. But if American bombers are flying combat missions from Tyndall Air Force Base, and if American submarines are being rearmed and uh, replenished from a base in Western Australia, then yeah, I can easily see that uh, Australia would work its way up the Chinese targeting list.
0: You see, in the light of all this, a key, absolutely critical element in our forward defence planning ought to be to get much closer to Indonesia. Tell me a bit about what you have in mind for that.
1: Yeah, this is probably the most ambitious and some of the people I've talk to about this book the the least realistic aspect of uh, of the argument that i make in the book what i'm calling for is something akin to an alliance with indonesia at the very least a much closer strategic partnership we may never call it an alliance because that has all s- sorts of domestic implications for indonesia and you know traditionally very allergic to that kind of idea but yes in a in a world in which a we can have less trust that the United States will be there for us, and where B, we want to maintain that advantage of distance, it makes perfect sense for Australia to partner with Indonesia, really with one core strategic goal in mind, and that is to make sure that China never dominates maritime Southeast Asia. As I said earlier, we can't we can't guarantee that China won't be a leading power, perhaps the leading power, but we can, together with Indonesia, I think, make sure China isn't the dominant military power. And that's not a terribly uh, ambitious military strategy.
0: Where do you see Indonesian power going in the next 20, 30 years?
1: Look, there are realistic forecasts that Indonesia will be the fourth biggest economy in the world by the middle of the century, bigger than Japan. So I think what we have to expect is that Indonesia becomes a, a, truly a great power over the course of the next 30 years. And that ought to be a good news story for Australia if Indonesia is on our side. Because at the moment, actually, from from the point of view of, of defending ourselves against China's ambitions and China's rise, Southeast Asia is somewhat unique. Uh, Everywhere that China looks around its periphery, there are other great powers that are going to constrain its ambitions. India, Russia, Japan, the United States in North Asia. Southeast Asia is exceptional because there's no great power in Southeast Asia. So I think it's in Australia's interest for Indonesia to be that great power. And actually, it's the only realistic candidate because it's got the economic potential and it's got the population size to be a great power. So I think Australia ought to be encouraging that.
0: The Keating government had a defence treaty with Indonesia, but it fell apart very quickly over East Timor uh, during the Howard government years. But that's no longer the case, is it? And does that mean the way is open for much closer relations without those those intervening problems putting West Papua to one side as well? Yeah,
1: I agree. Yes, that's largely behind us, and the bilateral relationship is in very good shape at the moment. But nevertheless, this would be, what I'm describing, would be a major step and, and something we've never really done before. The response I have to, to people who have told me that this is too ambitious, that this is wishful thinking, is to say, well, you know, circumstances can impose themselves very, very quickly. And the example I use is Germany, which changed its position incredibly quickly after Russia invaded Ukraine. So, you know, policy can move very fast when circumstances change. So Russia invaded Ukraine on a Thursday. By the following Sunday, the German Chancellor was giving a speech in which he promised implacable opposition to Russia's military goals. It was going to arm Ukraine, which it had never done. It had never sent arms abroad before. And it was going to wean itself away from uh, from Russian energy. Basically, a complete reversion of German foreign policy and defence policy for the 20 years previous. That happened in four days. Now, I'm not saying China is going to do anything as silly as what the Russians have done in Ukraine, but circumstances can impose themselves in ways that demand new action from governments. And I do think that at some point, Indonesia's interests are going to clash so directly with those of Beijing that uh, Indonesia will have a choice imposed upon it.
0: So that's step one you're calling for, a much closer defence arrangement with Indonesia. Step two is the Pacific Islands. Tell me what you're proposing that Australia should do in regards to the Pacific Islands.
1: Well, again, I think Europe is a model here. When we look at the European Union, this was essentially, the the roots of the European Union were an economic response to a security challenge. So after the Second World War, the Europeans said to themselves, never again, we're never going to fight like this again. And how do we do that? Well, we tie ourselves together economically in ways that make it impossible for us ever to fight uh, an ever closer union, as the phrase goes. On a much more modest level, I'm proposing something similar for the Pacific Islands region. And and I'm not new in this. I mean, the, the, the Rudd government and plenty of others have suggested a, a, an EU-style arrangement for Australia with the Pacific Islands region to essentially uh, ensure that the pacific islands countries remain not tied to australia but essentially make it impossible for pacific island countries to bargain with between us and china and to bargain between us and the united states and china and to make sure that they can never effectively defect in a in a security sense I think the, the the one thing that's held this back in the past, that's held back this idea, is that Australia hasn't been prepared to make enough sacrifice. So the Pacific Islands countries look at these proposals and say, well, what's in this for us? Why on earth would we do this? And we're having a great time playing one one guy off against the other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for this to happen, and again, you know, this this is a long-term proposition, but for this to happen, Australia will have to make major sacrifices. And that includes giving Pacific Island countries a major say in how uh, an economic union like this actually comes about and giving them rights to to set the direction of this union.
0: Sounds something a little like the Marshall Plan too, which was an economic proposal that had all kinds of defence and strategic ramifications.
1: Yeah, indeed. I, I think that's right. I should say, actually, that you know even prior to this, uh, I mean, that, that, that is, as I say, a long-term proposition. Even before we get to that point, Australia does have a lot of advantages in the Pacific Islands region. There's an awful lot of concern in Australia or has been over the last few years about China's growing interest in the region, delivering much more aid. Uh, there was a security agreement with the Solomon Islands, there was rumors a few years ago of China approaching Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu about setting up a military base. Uh, I think actually those rumours were pretty well founded. So this is not, I think, you know, a panic on Australia's part. I think China does have real ambitions in this area. However, the Pacific Islands region is much closer to us than it is to China. So we're always going to get there quicker and be of more help than China will be. Our aid spending is far higher than China's is, and China's aid spending has actually plateaued since 2016. And we have cultural, sporting and economic ties with the Pacific Islands region, that China can never match. So, look, even short of the kind of agreement that I'm talking about, the, U- the Pacific Union idea, Australia has major advantages and we don't need to panic about, about Chinese power in this region just yet.
0: I've been talking a little bit about the Second World War, uh, the war in the Pacific, Australia's a very different country now. We have more than triple the population we did back then. We're vastly more multicultural. We look a lot more like the rest of the world in that sense, and we're much, much richer as well. Nonetheless, I suppose you're proposing that Australia become much more independent. Is this a difficult ask for Australia culturally? Because Australia has only ever grasped independence warily, bit by bit, over the last century and a bit, hasn't it?
1: Now, that's true in a security sense. I think in other senses, we shouldn't underestimate how different Australia looks. I mean, politically, for one thing, it's been a very gradual process, perhaps too gradual to notice. But in the Second World War, there was still an attitude that because the United Kingdom was at war, Australia, therefore Australia was at war. I mean, as late as the 1980s, Australians could still appeal to the Privy Council in London for uh, important court cases. So... The process of independence, political independence in Australia has been very gradual, but from a, from a 30,000 foot perspective, it's been unmistakable. We've become a much more independent country politically, economically too. Our ties have shifted from the United Kingdom and the US to our own region, to uh, Japan uh, starting in the 1970s, became our major trading partner, now China. And our foreign policy has become much more Asia focused and much less Anglo focused, let's put it that way. So we've made major moves in that direction. And it seems to me altogether fitting with that trend, consistent with that trend, that Australia should take a more independent defence posture as well. We've been, you're absolutely right, reluctant to do that over our history. But for me, it's possible to imagine circumstances in which we'd have to. If the United States is intent on, against all reason, uh, is intent on maintaining its leadership in Asia and is prepared to fight China, then I think we should be prepared to to break the alliance if we absolutely have to. I doubt it would come to that, and I don't think it's in our interest to do that now, but I think absolutely if the United States is committed to a course that puts it on a... Uh, a effectively on a path to war with China, then um, I think we have to think very seriously about the alliance.
0: Much of those worries about war are centred around China invading Taiwan. Mm. If you were standing back and you thought that all leaders were rational, you'd think that for Xi Jinping to contemplate invading Taiwan, he'd have to be out of his mind because Taiwan is not contiguous to the Chinese mainland. They have an officer class that hasn't been in a shooting war since 1979. It would mean that Japan would get nuclear weapons, South Korea would get nuclear weapons. It would just be in the end uh, economically ruinous and probably could very well end up in military disaster as Mm. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has proved to be. Nonetheless, you do see over history dictators doing really dumb things like this. Like it was mad for Saddam Hussein to invade Kuwait. It was crazy in many ways for Russia to invade Ukraine, but often they're not getting good information, emotions overrule, ego overrules, common sense, and this happens anyway. Do you have a view on this, on the likelihood of China attempting something as foolhardy as an invasion of Taiwan?
1: I don't have a view on the likelihood, and I'd say just as a broader proposition there on making predictions or forecasts about that, that your listeners should never rely on political experts to make accurate (laughs) predictions in this regard. And I'd point them to a political scientist by the name of Philip Tetlock, who wrote a famous book called Expert Political Judgment, in which he proved conclusively that political experts of all kinds, while they have, you know, many uses and while they're very important for society in various different ways, they have a terrible record of making accurate predictions in their own fields of expertise. In fact, their record of, of accuracy of their predictions is not much better than flipping a coin. So I wouldn't rely on me for an accurate prediction about whether China is going to invade Taiwan. But all the reasons that you give for why it's a terrible idea I think are absolutely right. It's worth adding that it's not just dictators who make terrible judgments in rega- In this regard. Um, democracies are known for it as well. I think perhaps our, our mental... Our mental framework in regard to China is that because of the success they've achieved over the last forty years as an as a an economic power, that they don't make that many mistakes. Although clearly that reputation's been knocked about a little by by COVID, but even if we take a slightly longer frame for just the uh, the period of uh, of communist dictatorship in China, it's clear that the leadership there is capable of colossal mistakes, uh, such as the Great Leap Forward. For instance, cultural I mean, revolution, cultural revolution. Yeah. I mean, so, so yeah, I, I would not put it past uh, China to make a mistake of this kind, and clearly, it is developing the military capabilities uh, that can help them do it. I still think, in pure capability terms, there's some way off, and most analysts would agree with that that they don't have the amphibious capabilities to pull off uh, a full scale invasion of Taiwan. So, if uh, they're if they are attempting something slightly more modest, like a blockade or a you know, let's say, a permanent siege of Taiwan, then yeah, maybe. may be. But yeah, as you say, incredibly risky.
0: A couple of years ago, I had your mentor, Hugh White, on this program, who shares similar views to you in, in, in many of the things you've been saying here. And he is he of the view that if, if China did invade Taiwan, there would be a moment where the US president would be surrounded by his military chiefs, his national security experts. A discussion would come forward about how the United States might participate. The United States could offer conventional arms or even retaliate on those Chinese invading forces with their own weaponry, with their own force projection from their Pacific fleet. And then the President says, well, what happens then? Well, then China retaliates. Will they retaliate with nuclear weapons? Well, that's a possibility, Mr President. And in that case, I can't contemplate the destruction of the cities on the west coast of the United States or even beyond that. So in the end, there's nothing much we can do to help Taiwan in this matter. Mm. Do you see that scenario playing out? What do you think of that scenario?
1: Yeah, I think, in fact, it's very similar to the one I described earlier with regard to Korea. America has has interests in Taiwan security, And clearly, like Australia, would prefer that Taiwan was never invaded. But is it important enough to make that kind of sacrifice for Taiwan? Ultimately, I think not. Where I differ with Hugh is that he's made the argument that if America fails to make that commitment to Taiwan, then essentially its security guarantees to its other allies, to Japan, to Korea, for instance, they are so degraded that the, the credibility of those guarantees is is so damaged that America's position in Asia will will crumble as a result. I don't think that's true. And in fact, the opposite is true, that the United States, if the United States refuses to fight on Taiwan's behalf, it's quite possible to me to believe that Japan and Korea and maybe even Australia would be quietly relieved that the United States wasn't prepared to to fight a major war on Taiwan's behalf and would keep its powder dry for them especially because, you know, such a war, the United States is very likely to lose such a war now against China.
0: Would they want to use the Ukraine model instead, which is to tip a whole lot of ordnance and weaponry into Taiwan and let the Taiwanese forces, who I am pretty sure will fight like hell? I'm I'm seeing a sceptical look on your face there, Sam. I'm
1: not as sure as you.
0: Uh,
1: I'm not an expert on Taiwan's military. What, What we do know from public opinion polling is that the Taiwanese people feel ever more Taiwanese and ever less Chinese. But I I know just enough about the Taiwanese military to know that it has, I think for a long time, invested in many of the wrong capabilities and also that uh, the, the Taiwanese army in particular, not so much the Air Force and the Navy, but the Taiwanese army in particular is is in not great odour with with the Taiwanese public, I think largely because of its reputation as being tied to the old uh, Taiwanese dictatorship, you know, before Taiwan became a democracy. So its actual combat capabilities uh, of the Taiwanese army, I think, are open to question.
0: You describe yourself as a liberal conservative, which I think what you're meaning by that is you're a conservative who's not a reactionary. I think that's what you're trying to say. Is that right? That 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 sounds about right.
1: I mean, here's the... Comparison I draw. You said earlier I think that that I've I've started to sound like uh, a little bit of a radical on Orcus because I'm a, a little bit outside mainstream opinion on that question. But seems to me I'm I'm the conservative one here. So there was a, the great American essayist William F. Buckley once said that the job of the conservative is to stand athwart history, yelling stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so it seems to me it's 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 the other team that's that's doing the radicalising here. You know, AUKUS uh, is a, a a radical shift and a radical deepening of uh, the U.S. Australia alliance. I'm the one who's standing athwart that bit of history, yelling stop. I mean, it's not as if we were a terrible ally before, you know, the United States had all sorts of complaints about its European allies, Uh, not just Trump, but every US president, you know, going back through the Cold War, used to complain that the Europeans weren't doing enough for their own security. But Australia was always exempted from that. And so it wasn't the Americans who were calling for this. This was our idea. And it seemed to me that, you know, we, we were being a pretty good ally even before this.
0: Does your conservatism influence your views on the wickedness of war?
1: I think one of the real tragedies of the modern the, the radicalization of the right, particularly in the United States over the last well let's let's refer to the trump period, although I think we go back probably to the post cold War we can refer to it as a post cold war period. one of the tragedies of that period is that it, it has it has gone beyond valorization of of military service which has always been i think a, a an important component of of conservative ideas towards something like fetishizing it where military force and military aggression have become proxies for you know masculine strength if you like uh, so i'm really uncomfortable with that I, I don't think it's all at all inconsistent with uh, with conservative beliefs to take pride in the military sacrifices that pe- that, that uh, previous generations have made. In fact, that's perfectly consistent.
0: I remember you, you've quoted something in your book. You've quoted Edmund Burke, the f- famous conservative, the British parliamentarian, who mm. said something about how war abrogates the normal moral laws and sort of makes it a kind of semi-permanent state.
1: Yeah. And I think many, many conservatives, including uh, Michael Oakeshott, who's a figure, the figure that I studied uh, at university many years ago, have, have warned about... The effects of war to turn societies and turn governments into, to turn countries into perpetual garrison states, and that that does erode the liberties that we all enjoy living in democratic uh, societies.
0: Fantastic speaking with you, Sam, and fascinating. Thank you so
1: much. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au conversations.